Good morning. Good morning. This is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, talking this morning to Mark King, who is the director of the Mohawk Hudson Land Conservancy. And we're here on a morning where there's actually snow this winter. And I know from an earlier conversation that Mark is a skier. Have you been out in the snow? I have. I was out this morning. What, what were you doing? Cross-country skiing. Tell me a little about that. Why do you like to cross-country ski? Uh, it's a great way to get out in the woods. It's great exercise. It's fun. Um, just love doing it. It's very meditative activity. And he does this despite the fact that one winter, while doing cross-country skiing in Thatcher Park, he broke his leg and didn't even know for a week <laughs> that he was walking around on a broken leg. So he's a rugged man. Well, I don't know. <laughs> now you're stretching the truth there. <laughs> um, but really, sort of a core to your mission, it seems to me, is the relationship between human beings and nature. And if you could just tell us a little about your thoughts on that. Well, I think that is uh, definitely a core piece of what we do. You know, our, our, we're formed to protect land, to protect open space, and we, um, that's, that's primarily what we do. But the question behind that is, why do you do that? And um, it is multiple-pronged thing. One reason is to uh, allow people to connect with nature. And, um, but also, obviously, the environment and nature has an intrinsic value to all of us and all the species and systems out there. So, um, but we do want to offer people opportunities to connect with nature, and for that reason, we have 18 different public preserves, including one right around the corner from here on the Bozenkill, uh, to give people that opportunity. But along with giving people opportunities, we're also preserving natural areas for the um, animals and birds and everything else that needs those places if they're to survive. Well, I looked on your website, and I saw that you have outlined four particular areas that are of importance. And I wonder if you could talk a little about each of them. The one that probably our readers are most familiar with is the pine bush. And as soon as you hear that, you think carnivore blue butterfly. Right. But I know there are many other species and many other reasons. So if you could just kind of walk through maybe starting with the most familiar, the pine bush, and sure. tell us a little about what's being preserved there and why, and then we'll just walk on to the next one. Okay, well, the pine bush is really interesting to me personally. I think it should be to other people as well because it's a totally different environment. Um, you know, if you're in Altamont, out in the woods, uh, it's one thing. If you're in the pine bush, it's a completely different environment, different soils, different vegetation, somewhat different plant species, including, of course, the, the Carner Blue. So it's really unique. It's been recognized as a national natural landmark, uh, very few of those in the whole country. Uh, the Nature Conservancy recognized it as one of the last great places and has always highlighted the uh, rare things and, and rare ecology of that area. So we are looking to preserve land there and are helping out uh, the Nature Conservancy is doing a little less land protection in that area, so we are trying to step in where we can. We don't have the resources that they have to uh, do some of the bigger deals, but we've uh, protected about four or five different parcels just in the last year in the pine bush to, to build on this area. One of the things I think that's really interesting about the pine bush that I think a lot of people don't realize, there's this great um, juxtaposition of 
the whole nanotechnology, the College of Nanotechnology being right there in the pine bush. And so there's all this very advanced stuff. Right next door in the pine bush, there's really advanced science and ecological work going on. And there's a ecolo- an ecological restoration project that is just a tremendous scale and really unusual level of detail and depth um, that you don't see in many places. We don't see um, too many areas where that level of focused restoration goes on. So I think it's it's interesting that we all, we're so consumed by the nanotechnology and the sort of high-tech thing, and the pine bush is doing this um, very basic science and ecology right next door, and the two are, are literally face-to-face. So I, I think that's a very interesting aspect of the pine bush. Yeah, well, um, a couple of threads of... Um or pathways have come up in my mind as you've been talking. Is this restoration where they're taking what is the landfill and trying to remake it into? Um, well, that is barren? one one piece of it, yeah. and um, and that's an interesting one in itself. And and uh, ultimately, when they are done with that, and when the landfill closes, assuming it will close one of these days, uh, I, I've had the opportunity to stand on top of the the Mount Trashmore, as they yeah. sometimes call it, and. Uh, the view from there is just spectacular, but there is a, a whole segment of restoration going on around the landfill. But I'm really referring to the entire ecosystem with the burning, with the vegetative management. And if you drive down the throughway, you know, you drive right to the middle of the pine bush and you can see on either side, there's a tremendous amount of restoration that has gone on there to maintain this area as the unique system that it is. Um, so it, it goes beyond the landfill. The landfill is a piece of it. Okay, well, one of the other threads that occurred to me as you were talking, when I was a kid growing up in Gilderland, we used to play there, Mm -hmm. and the general idea at the time in the grown-up's mind to me seemed to be this was wasteland. This was uh, nothing nothing interesting or worth preserving. So maybe you could just kind of talk about the evolution of the community or human beings' recognition of what you now describe as a unique ecosystem that's worth per- preserving. I mean, it seems... Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting <laughs> aspect of this is how we can change our um, approach and our thinking about systems. And, and you're exactly right. For years, it was a wasteland. Uh, you know, it wasn't good farmland necessarily. So it, it was kind of overlooked from that perspective, didn't have great timber. Uh, and so... For years and years, the, the thing that was good about it, it was easy to develop, and there was water, and those were the two features of it. But gradually, people are able to, to see a little deeper and, and learn more about it and have recognized that, well, this is really different. It's really unique. This is an inland pine barrens. It's very similar to the environment on Cape Cod or um, the New Jersey pine barrens, but it is isolated and, as a result, slightly different from those places. But I think there's something really hopeful in the fact that people can do a complete 180 in thinking and and really come to the aid of a place that they recognize, wow, this isn't a wasteland. There's actually really interesting things here. There's really interesting science. um, And we can do a lot to restore it and we can enjoy it. It gets more and more use. The Discovery Center has really um, brought a lot of exposure to the pine bush. And um, there's great work being done. So it's I see it as a really hopeful place where there's some possibility that we can turn around our thinking and and 
protect things that are really, really important. Yeah, I mean, the wilderness is no longer a threat to humans. The wilderness is right. something that has to be preserved if we're going to have natural balance. Another thread that um, you mentioned when you were first describing this was the Nature Conservancy had originally, you said, been um, primary in helping to preserve this. And I know you have a background with the Nature Conservancy. And if you could just tell us a little bit about that organization and its mission and the sorts sure. of work that it does. Well, they are the largest conservation organization in the world, um, work in every state and multiple countries. Uh, I worked there for 17 years in the Eastern New York chapter, working basically from the Adirondack Blue Line south to the edge of New York City. And um, they do tremendous work. Um, they are really the leaders in um, ecological science and have been obviously a huge part of land protection and have done tremendous work throughout. The organization was founded in this area and um, I think that's that's an interesting piece of history that a lot of people are not very aware Tell of. Tell us a little about that, that little piece of history. Well, I'm not, a, not an expert <laughs> on the history of it, but um, you know, it, it <clears throat> coalesced here with folks, a, a lot of folks relating to GE and engineers who um, after World War II were um, really dedicated to wilderness and, and the outside and um, saw a lot of change going on, the, the post-World uh, War II boom, a lot of spreading development, a lot of places being sort of overwhelmed. And so they, folks got together, and it, of course it wasn't just GE people, a lot of concerned people, a lot of science folks, and they got together and said, let's form a science-based organization, an organization whose decisions on what we should do on the land are driven by scientific understanding of the land. And so that has guided the organization um, to where it is today. But um, they're doing, in, in this area, they're doing less on the land protection front and more on some of the bigger scale issues like climate change and, and things that are um, sort of beyond the work of land trusts' ability to do um, that require real solid science and, and significant resources to accomplish. But that work can guide the work of organizations like ours. So you mentioned the important topic of climate change, and it's something I think particularly now with the new administration in Washington that people are very concerned about. And what does an organization like yours, or you were talking about the Nature Conservancy um, with its more scientific approach than rather just land acquisition, how does that affect or prevent climate change? Well, I think uh, the, the science side uh, helps predict what changes will occur and what is going on on the land. And um, so that can guide decision makers on, on what we should do about it and where we should respond. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a tremendous need for more understanding of that, but the urgency is growing by the moment. And clearly with uh, the current administration, we're going to lose considerable ground because there's so much denial of what seems increasingly obvious um, that, that this is a gigantic problem and I think will become more so. Uh, the irony of Scott Pruitt being uh, made the EPA director today is, is just amazing because Oklahoma has huge environmental problems resulting from oil and gas exploration and uh, they're in a heat wave. They almost hit 100 yesterday. Um, these, these are changes that are just becoming more and more striking by the day. So, you know, coming back to 
what organizations do, one thing that we can definitely do that we know improves things and there's sort of, to me, there's no downside to is protect land. Um, we know that forests and, and natural areas are carbon sinks. And so we know that that's successful in somewhat reducing some of the impacts. It's not of a scale necessarily that's going to change the whole picture. We need to do a lot of things on a lot of fronts, but it is one front that we know will work and that um, there's multiple side benefits to, you know, climate change isn't the only environmental issue out there. There still are continuing to be endangered species, numerous species threatened and endangered all the time, um, and ecological systems continue to be compromised. And so by preserving land, we can get directly at that and hopefully have an, an impact on climate change as well. So... It, we are going to get back to these other areas, oh, sure. but I'm just following these threads because they're so interesting. So in preserving land, I know you use several different tools in your organization. And if you could just tell us, it's not just always buying land to protect it. Right. What, what sorts of things do you do in order to protect land? Well, there's two primary methods. One you, you mentioned is acquiring <laughs> it either through donation or purchase. Um, and we do that frequently um, because that has the benefit of oftentimes allowing people to get out on land and enjoy it as well um, as protecting it. The other uh, common approach is through conservation easements, which is essentially the retiring the development rights from a property, permanently eliminating development rights for the most part. And that um, that's a, a great mechanism as well for people who want to retain the ownership of their land, want it to retain, uh, remain private and on tax rolls. Um, it does not necessarily entail public use, and the land can be passed on through generations or sold or whatever else. So it's a different approach, but it, um, it has the same effect of permanently preserving a landscape. So those are the primary methods. There are lots of little variations and things that uh, come up of where, for example, we're going to open a new preserve this spring, which actually has a conservation easement on it. But the owner is so excited about the possibilities of um, the public seeing and exploring his land that he's going to open it as a preserve. So we'll actually operate sort of under a management agreement where we will operate a preserve on private property. So there's and where is that? Uh, that's in Montgomery County, uh, right near Amsterdam. So it sounds like you're very flexible as an organization and working with people if they're right. We're really solution oriented, really trying to find out what works because different things work in different situations. People have the assumption, and particularly people who are down on what we do, that we're grabbing all the land and we're just taking everything away. But there's a lot of variation to how these things can be approached. And um, and the goal is to come up with win-win solutions for landowners and for the environment. So do you have a lot of people that are, as you say, down on what you do? Do you feel... Like um, I, I think there's always people that are concerned about any sort of change. We, yeah. we seem to hate change or resist change at every possibility. So, uh, no, I don't, I don't see that we see a lot of resistance to what we do. I think there have been periods where there have been uh, some paranoia about what we'll do. But I, I think uh, historically there's been some, some fears about what, what, we, what we're doing and are we, you know fitting in well with the community. I think most of those fears have sort of been put behind us because we've seen a level of development in most places that 
uh, I think most people are more interested in seeing some things preserved and protected than um, than the worry that we're going to sort of take over the world. And the scale of what we do, even even big groups like the Nature Conservancy does, in comparison to the level of development, particularly at a time like now, uh, it's just uh, it's so out of balance. It's so when the economy ridiculous. picks up, it makes it even more essential to have an organization like yours because the development follows. Are sure. there certain things that municipalities can do that are helpful when it comes to zoning or regulations? Um, what comes to mind is there is a movement to have cluster development with space around it right. or are there things that you I think that's that's or? an area that um, is one of the most important in fact I think communities and zoning and planning can actually be more effective than the work we can do you know we, we can preserve some spots and work in some places but um, zoning and planning can affect whole communities and if those are done carefully with an eye toward maintaining corridors toward maintaining setbacks things like that, um, that's hugely beneficial and has a huge impact. Um, I would love to see much more stringent um, review of projects, pushing projects further from water bodies. I, th- I think an obvious place that really needs to be given more attention to that relates to climate change is setbacks from streams and wetlands. Um, you know, we are going to see changes. We have seen changes in flows in streams. And if we depend on outdated uh, floodplain controls, um, that's not going to work and we're going to have problems. So we really need to look at planning and zoning with an eye toward the future of this. We're in a period where things are changing. Water levels are higher, streams are flowing heavier, and storms are more intense. So that has to be incorporated. But I think it's hard for communities to sort of keep up. And it's such a heavy lift for communities to deal with this because land use is immensely controversial and it obviously affects what people want to do. And so there's a lot of resistance. So it isn't just coastal communities that have to worry about the rising ocean levels. You're saying inland communities with streams and lakes and things because of the increased storm levels, the 100-year storms that are now every Mm -hmm. 10 years, they have to plan to have that land around those areas not developed. Right. And we see that, you know, the Hudson and Mohawk are our coastal areas, so to speak. And so those areas need to be planned for the, all the tributaries. And th- this uh, follows with all these things. All these things tend to be tied together. Um, an example it, that is related is invasive species and do what communities need to plan for that. And I think that people sort of think of invasive species as something that's over there in the corner doesn't really affect me. Um, but we, we've seen it in communities like Altamont. Altamont was once lime, lined by elm trees. Well, the elms died off with Dutch elm. Not that that's a climate change thing, but it's a, it's a species change. And so a lot of communities, for example, Woodstock, when the elms started to die, they replaced them with ashes. And now we've got um, the emerald ash borer, and the emerald ash borer is taking out the ashes. And you say, well, that's that's sad, that's tragic. But for the village of Woodstock, there's a huge cost there because all of a sudden we've got a budget for replacing these trees that are all going to suddenly die. And so these things are all tied together. And I think that's one thing that we want to help people recognize and realize that climate change, species change, land use, these are all related. 
Yes, and I'm learning about these relationships right now. Just to move on to the next area that you've designated, um, that's the Hudson and Mohawk River Corridor, and you've touched on that a bit in this conversation already, but just tell us about that and also the concept of corridor and why that's so important. Sure. Well, the Hudson and Mohawk are obviously the two major water features in the region that we work in, and we cover Albany, Schenectady, and Montgomery counties, so they're both um, heavily uh, influenced by the two rivers. And we would like to do more. We have not done an awful lot of on, on the um, Hudson. We would like to do more there, but um, we're starting to work with Scenic Hudson more, and um, Scenic Hudson has done outstanding work along the Hudson. And so, you know, this brings in the issue of partnership and the need for organizations to work together. So an organization like Scenic Hudson that's very regional and very large um, can work with an organization like us on immediate problems and immediate issues that um, uh, so we can we can essentially add to their resources by working with them. Um, the Mohawk, same thing. Mohawk doesn't have scenic Hudson working on it, but um, we've just created our fir- first preserve along the Mohawk. And I think the Mohawk is unfortunately a bit of a forgotten river and sort of overlooked, but it's a beautiful place and a tremendous resource. So we'd like to do more primarily along um, the major tributaries of the Mohawk. We've got a preserve on the Schoharie Creek. Um, there's there's a tremendous amount that we can do along the Mohawk to preserve and introduce people to that area. Um, it's got great cultural history, great ecology. So there's a lot to be done there, but um, we ha- we haven't we've barely scratched the surface on on the work that we need to do there. I wonder what makes one river more prominent than another. Because you're right, the Hudson seems to have a much higher profile in yeah. the public's mind. My daughter. Years ago, it was on the Sloop Clearwater, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and traversing up and down the Hudson and singing songs. And it just seems to have more of uh, a higher public profile. I don't know. Does your organization... Well, some of it is clearly um, the people who live along it. And so yeah. there's tremendous wealth along the lower Hudson. Yeah. Obviously, New York City is on the Hudson. Yeah. So yeah, it influences a lot more people, a lot more see it. people see it on a daily basis. People are riding the train along it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a whole level of magnitude of uh, difference in terms of its kind of exposure to the public eye. And you do have groups like Scenic Hudson and uh, you mentioned the, the uh, Clearwater so there's been a whole history of um, environmental activism along the Hudson, the big Storm King proposal, the power plant proposal that really kind of spurred the growth of Scenic Hudson um, and other uh, organizations like that. There's just been a lot more attention paid to it. The Mohawk is smaller, less populated. Uh, unfortunately, we ran the throughway on it, and uh, and the, you know, so it's really very boxed in by transportation systems. And I think once we do that to a river, we tend to then write it off a little bit and say, well, it's, you know, it's over there, but it's, it's almost more of a a ditch and it's, we'll drive by it once in a while where the Hudson um, is really, it's in a sense better laid out and you can, there's more access to it and it's easier to utilize. And so people uh, it's higher on people's mind. But it, is the casino in Schenectady going to be good or bad for the Mohawk? I mean, it's opening up the waterfront to people to yeah. notice it, I guess. But so that could be a good effect. Yeah. I, that's that's outside of my uh, okay. ability to predict. <laughs> yeah, I right. have no idea. Well, just moving on to the next area you've designated, this is one that I know nothing about, Hoffman's Fault. 
Yeah, Hoffman's Fault is an area uh, that geologists know very well. It's a place in Schenectady where um, basically there, there's a fault. The land has subsided on one side of the fault and risen on another, and that has exposed an interesting geological um uh, geology that you normally wouldn't be able to see. Um, and the place that is most, the, where this is most obvious is a place called Wolf Hollow Road in Schenectady, which is a public road uh, that has been closed. And it's a very interesting place to us because the fault runs basically very close to the road. And so on one side of the road, you have one sort of uh, geological system and the other side you have different geology and as a result there's different plants and um, uh, different aspects to, to the two sides so it's a really unique spot it's also extremely scenic and um, so that is a uh, that's a place that we are very interested in protecting we have numerous conservation easements around it but we'd also love to be able to work with Schenectady County to um, come up with a way to to allow public use on the road. The road has been closed off. There's a parallel road right next to it that is open and, and utilized. So this road has been closed and it's sort of uh, a little bit forgotten. We would love to do something with the county um, to possibly open that to public use, maybe through a lease or management agreement, which would mirror the way that we have operated um, parts of the Helderberg Hudson Rail Trail, where we've leased them from the county and operate them through a system of volunteers and, and oversight. So we'd love to try that same approach on Wolf Hollow Road, but um, there's a lot of decisions that need to be made before that's able to happen. So it sounds like you have constantly many, many different plans in the works, many different balls in the air that you're right. juggling. Oh, yeah. What One of the terms you mentioned a couple of times in, in this last discussion is volunteers. If you could just mm -hmm. tell us a little about um, who volunteers are, what they do for your organization, and how somebody could become a volunteer if they sure. want to. Sure. Volunteers are really critical to us because we are a small organization. Um, we have <coughs> five people working uh, professionally for us, but volunteers are really the heart and soul of it. We are begun by volunteers, and we continue to have a very active volunteer board. Uh, it takes a lot of dedication and time to be on the board, but that is one place people can volunteer. But uh, we also have lots of other volunteer activities. As I mentioned before, we have 18 preserves. Each has a volunteer preserve steward, and some have volunteer uh, preserve committees, like the Bozen Kill, um, and uh, we've talked before about um, Darwin Rosa and... Um, Meanie. <laughs> Kathy Meanie. Kathy Meanie. Yeah. Uh, Darwin and Kathy lead a volunteer committee on the Bosenkill that's very effective. Um, and so there are work days on the various preserves where volunteers come out and do trail work or clean up. We also have a um, large cadre of volunteers on the, on the rail trail. We run what's called a rail ambassador program and people volunteer to walk sections of the trail and uh, produce a weekly report on conditions along the rail trail, which has been tremendously helpful to the municipalities and the county to figure out where problems are, where issues are, what people are thinking about the trail. Uh, so that's a that's a big spot for volunteers. Um, we also need volunteers to stuff envelopes and do office work as well. Uh, we have a volunteer that keeps track of uh, 
preserve visitation data because that's something we really want to know more about is how many people use the preserves and what do they what do they think of preserves so we have a volunteer that helps compile that information so there are lots of different places for volunteers they run the gamut from folks that are retired to high school students uh, and everything in between that's great. And just because you mentioned the sign-ups, I will point out there's a kiosk at most of these places yes. where people can sign in and urge people to do that because I know you said earlier that it's so important to track this and you right. have the thought that probably half the people visiting aren't signing in. Oh, I'm sure it's less than half. And, and I think one reason is that people are concerned that um, you know we're going to send them something or we're going to capture their name. We don't ask for any other information other than what is your name? Um, where you're from, basically, you know, Altamont, Voorheesville, not not your address. And um, one of the other questions, how many people and how many dogs? I do <laughs> see a number of dogs yes. signed in. Dog, we, we like to keep track of the dogs. It's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. You know, dogs are what drive a lot of us to go outside. And it's really easy to say, ah, I won't go out today. It's kind of cold. But the dog doesn't say that. And so, right. so they, they want, make you get out. I looked at a study that said that they had people in an old folks home and one group was supposed to walk every day with a friend and one group was supposed to walk every day with a dog from a shelter nearby. And the dog people walked every day. Yes. You yeah. have a dog? Oh, yeah. What I, kind of a I dog? I almost brought it along. Oh, my <laughs> We have gosh. two dogs. Who are we they? We have an Australian Shepherd mix, and um, we have a new puppy called the Eurasia, which is kind of an unusual breed. I've never heard of it. It's a chow. Um, it's a cross between a chow and a um, keys hound. Oh, wow. It's so, very, yeah, very you're out with your dogs a lot then. Yeah, they're always dragging us around. <laughs> So the last area of the four that are listed on your website is one that most of our readers are familiar with, at least as a profile in the distance, and that is the Helderberg Escarpment. But tell us, tell us about that. Well, the Helderberg Escarpment is really one of the areas that I think um, have driven our work as much as anywhere, um, because it is such a prominent part of the, the local landscape and is so well-known and well-regarded. Um, we have done a lot of work around Thatcher Park. We are trying to build some corridors, and um, the need for corridors goes back to climate change and um, uh, habitat reduction from development. So the Helderbergs are a really important spot and have been identified scientifically for hundreds of years for their importance from all kinds of perspectives, geological, historic, cultural, um, ecological so it's it's an area that's naturally a, a sort of a magnet for um, protecting land, and it's an area that is really sort of vulnerable and, and easy to um, easy to ruin, frankly. Um, but one of the things that really has driven us to focus on the Helderbergs, um, in addition to all the factors I mentioned, is the idea of creating corridors. One of the areas that we have focused on, and we initially focused on was um, after we did the uh, conservation easement on Indian Ladder Farms, which essentially um, retired the development rights on Indian Ladder Farms, we fairly quickly recognized that we had created an island there. So you've got a uh, almost literally an island. It's surrounded by wetlands, if you look at the sort of big picture of it. And as we learned more and more about the area, we realized this is really uh, one of the outstanding ecological areas in this region. Um, and that is in part because you have the Black Creek Marsh Wildlife Management Area on one side of Indian Ladder and Fly Creek Marsh on the other side. And then all of that is linked directly and hydrologically by, uh, to the Helderberg Escarpment. 
And so one of our first thoughts was, well, let's see if we can preserve land between uh, Indian Ladder and Thatcher Park, because that stretch, Picard Road area, um, is really outstanding um, ecologically. It's got a tremendous diversity of reptiles and amphibians. It's considered an important bird area. It's obviously extremely scenic. There's very interesting um, movement of water there. So that drew us to, to to work to protect areas there. And so we've protected um, about uh, 200 or so acres between um, Indian Ladder and Thatcher Park and are working on some more in there to create that linkage. But as we looked at that and we looked at available data and guidance from um, scientific folks, we realized the whole escarpment really has uh, huge value in terms of ecology. And so we said, can we, can we look at an even bigger scale? And that scale is of creating a protected corridor sort of across the Helderberg Plateau toward the Catskills. And there are a lot of protected areas existing there, uh, the Hike Preserve, Coal Hill. Um, there, so there's a number of, and of course, Thatcher Park, there's a number of sort of protected islands there. And so we're looking at what, what can we bring together there and how can we create a, a large corridor of protected land um, that will have a big influence, hopefully, on climate change in terms of preserving land and leaving it natural, but also creating a corridor that species can move into and through um, as conditions change. And so we, uh, and part of that work is also the Bosonkill. And the Bosonkill is a really interesting area that, again, has been highlighted by lots of different scientific work to show that these are the kind of areas that um, buffer from climate change to some degree because they have what are known as microclimates, very small areas where it's slightly cooler or more protected. And so um, so we're looking to put together the corridor on the Bosonkill, but also looking at the bigger picture and how much can we piece together. The really big thinkers look toward, could we ever connect the Catskills and the Adirondacks? It's hard to even imagine that scale of land protection at this point, but um, I think there's a good case to be made that that would be... Um, a worthwhile endeavor and uh but for now we're piecing together what we can of a corridor um in the helderbergs well early in this description you said that it's easy to ruin the helderbergs is that the karst topography or what is it about it that makes it easy to- well yeah and that's a coarse way to put it but, but uh, uh but i, I know i said that right. but uh, i think uh, it is the karst topography you know it's very uh susceptible to issues like septic um, you know, improperly working septic because you have uh, many places with very thin soils and limestone fissures. So uh, things can move very quickly through that environment. Um, and it's also a highly visible area. And so and we've, we've seen it in my lifetime. I've seen it, you know, increasingly as you look from below, us, us flatlanders look right. at the, the escarpment. The yeah, you have the, the towers yeah. and, and, you know, new lights go up all the time. And yeah. so, uh, I think we, we will see uh, a change there. We've seen a change, and we'll see that change continue as people are willing to build on more and more challenging spots. And uh, there's an interesting technology side to that, too, as we develop um, alternative ways to, uh, to get power. It's going to open new opportunities for people to build on spots that previously were probably unbuildable. And so 
we want to, we need that technology and we need those changes. But on the other hand, we don't want it to destroy um, places that really are inappropriate for development. So it gets back to local zoning issues again. Yeah. 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 And local zoning, I just cannot stress how important that is to, to really guide a community and to form the community's vision of what is important. Because I think that's sometimes overlooked is that the, you know, communities develop a sense of what they are and what they want to be through these efforts. Um, but it's, as I said, it's a, it's a big job. Well, thank you, Mark King. We're coming up on our half hour. Do you have sure. any concluding thoughts that you'd like to leave listeners with about? Well, I hope people are interested in what we do and will explore it. I hope people will get out and visit the preserves and see how nice they are. We find that once people visit a preserve, they often want to come back or at least their dog does. Yeah, and they're all <laughs> listed on the website. And yep. I can say from having been to them myself, one of the things that's so nice, as opposed to, say, the Adirondacks now, where the high peaks are sort of overrun, is you can be in one of these preserves and hardly see another person. Right. Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, just lovely. They're it's, very quiet, and yeah. um, they're, uh, they're easy to get to. You know, you don't have to drive three hours to go there, and you can go there, you know, and spend... 20, 30 minutes, and I think it's really beneficial to people to get out and take a walk. And if you're listening to this, maybe you're thinking, well, when's the last time I went out in the woods and walked around? And hopefully you'll say, boy, it's been too long, and I'll get out there and you and can go. even do it in the winter. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Encourage it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.